This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. With that, we will now turn to God's Word. And so if you have a Bible, open it up to Colossians chapter 2. We will be in Colossians uh, just this one last week for this year, because next week starts the Advent season. And so we'll have an Advent series, and then we will resume Colossians in 2022, Lord willing. But this will be our last time looking at this letter for 2021. And so we'll be in Colossians chapter 2. Before we look to God's word, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for bringing us here into this place today. And I ask now that you would quiet our minds and our hearts, that we could hear from your word, and that the concerns or worries or burdens that we have brought into this room might be quieted for this time so that we can focus our gaze on you. We ask that your spirit would do that in us and speak to us through your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week is certainly going to be a busy week for our country, as it always is. Thanksgiving is one of the biggest holidays for our nation. Every year, airports will fill up with millions of people that are going to relocate from one town to another so they can get closer to friends and family. Grocery stores will be packed of people buying last-minute things to prepare dishes. And then hopefully, if all goes right, on Thursday night, hundreds of millions of us will sit down to eat a dinner that will probably take more effort than almost any other meal we'll eat this year. And if all goes well, that'll take place Thursday on Thanksgiving. It's a big holiday. It's hard to tell exactly how big, but it's certainly top three, I think, for holidays observed and celebrated in our country. And it's a holiday that should come naturally to the people of God. As a people with an acute understanding of not only what we can be thankful for, but to whom we can give thanks, this holiday should be a welcome occasion to once again celebrate and express our gratitude to God for all that he's done for us. Long before we had Macy's Thanksgiving parades, long before we had a turkey dinner, long before pilgrims landed in New England, the people of God have been a people of thanksgiving. It's a rhythm that's woven all throughout the history of God and his people. The law of Israel speaks of a thanksgiving sacrifice that can be made to God to express, again, your gratitude for what God has given you. The Psalms are replete with songs urging us to give thanks. Prayers throughout the Old and New Testament offer up thanks to God for who he is and what he has done. If you read through your New Testament, you'll notice Paul opens many of his letters, including Colossians, where we've been expressing his thankfulness. But with all that said, have you ever had a year, maybe it's this year, maybe it's been one in the past, but have you ever had a year where it seemed more difficult to be thankful when that fourth Thursday of November rolls around? Have you ever had a season where expressing much less feeling gratitude seems impossible because of all the things that are going on in your life? 
Holidays aside, have you ever had moments or times or extended seasons where you know mentally you should be thankful towards God and you understand that if he's done all the things he said he has, you should feel some sort of gratitude for that. But at a heart level, you know that's just not how you feel. Instead, you feel anxious or you feel angry or despairing or perhaps you just don't feel much towards God at all. So have you ever been in that place? Paul is concerned for the Colossian Christians. He's not just concerned that they might have a lack of gratitude or thankfulness to God. Rather, he's concerned with the root cause that results in thanklessness towards God, drifting from the hope of the gospel. And so this morning, Paul has an exhortation of encouragement to the Christian who might be anxious or discouraged or angry or who feels exhausted in their faith. He has an exhortation to encourage us that ultimately results in thanksgiving. So if you have your Bibles open, I'll read our passage for us this morning starting in verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. These verses mark a turning point for the letter to the Colossians. He uses therefore to show us that he's referring to what he has said before, but what Paul will do in these two verses is outline sort of his main reason for writing the Colossians and the main theme that will take up the rest of his letter. So we get to the heart now of why Paul has written to these believers. And in just four words, Paul sums up the entirety of what he has said to the Colossian church thus far. Christ Jesus the Lord. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Those four words can be easy to sort of skip over because we're used to seeing them close to one another. And we're used to just realizing it's talking about Jesus and then move on. But with those four words, Paul is reminding the Colossians of what he's been saying up until this point and reminding them of the basis for the rest of his letter, Christ Jesus the Lord. Paul is concerned that the Colossians will be confused about the lordship of Jesus. And the Colossians seem concerned about the effectiveness of the salvation of Jesus. So Paul reminds them of the message they've already heard and that they're now living in. He reminds them, Jesus, who I talk about, who my whole ministry has been about, Jesus is the Lord and he is the Christ. These aren't just names to refer to one man. Rather, it's the name Jesus and two titles most closely associated with him, Christ and Lord And we can grow so accustomed to just hearing them together and glossing over them. And we forget to truly marvel at their meaning. In chapter 1, Paul reminds the Colossians of the absolute supremacy and preeminence of Jesus. Paul has dedicated his entire life to telling people about Jesus of Nazareth. At one time, Paul's entire life was dedicated to persecuting people who followed Jesus... 
But now his entire life is spent making sure that anyone and everyone who can hear about this Jesus who lived in Nazareth can hear that word. And he reminds them in chapter 1 that this Jesus he talks so much about, that he has traveled thousands of miles to preach about, that he has spoken with countless individuals about. This Jesus is not just a prophet who spoke a word from God. This Jesus was not just a teacher who had some thought-provoking things to say. This Jesus was not just an example of how we should live our lives. This Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord of all things. Through Jesus, all things were made. We read in Colossians 1, they were made through him and for him, and it is because of him that everything in the universe, whether you can see it or whether you can't see it, is now in this moment holding together. Paul's entire life has been dedicated so that people might know that Jesus, who came, born in Bethlehem, from the town of Nazareth, is the Lord of all creation. There's a second title that Paul ascribes to Jesus here, Christ. Jesus of Nazareth is not only the Lord of all things, but he is the Christ. This title, Christ, refers to Israel's Messiah, a long-awaited deliverer that God had promised to his people, a Savior that could ransom people from their captivity and reunite them with God. The prophets in the Old Testament spoke of this Savior, the Psalms sung of this Savior. And now in Jesus, we have seen this Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. And we needed a Savior because we were dead, alienated from God, distant, doing evil deeds, destined for an eternal separation from our Creator and an eternal punishment for our sin. So as Jesus of Nazareth comes, the Lord and the Messiah, we stand there as dead, evil-doing aliens from God. But Jesus has come that we might be saved. This Christ, who is Jesus, the Lord of lords, who created all things, who has power and authority over all things, he himself has come as our Savior, and with his cross... And by his shed blood, he has ransomed a people for himself and delivered us from darkness into light and into the family of God. And Paul reminds the Colossian church of who this Jesus is. He is both Christ, the Savior, the one we have waited thousands of years for, but he is also the Lord, the Lord over all things. And so we don't have to wonder if this Savior was strong enough to really save us. We don't have to wonder whether he did enough for that salvation to be accomplished because our Savior is no one less than the God who created all things. So Paul reminds the Colossians of the great hope that they have been given. The gospel of Jesus, who is God in flesh and who has come to be our Redeemer. And he's concerned for the church. Because false teachers have come into Colossae and they're trying to dilute that message. 
And it's not a problem unique to the Colossian Christians. As we see the early church in the New Testament, seemingly everywhere, false teachers try to come in and dilute that message. Or those who are in the church and Christians try to look elsewhere for a message of hope and try to mix that in with their faith. And Paul's concerned that this clear hope of the gospel of Jesus, God in flesh as our Savior, might be diluted. Because the problem is when you dilute the gospel, you lose the entire message. So these false teachers come into Colossae to speak with the Colossians. And at the heart of it, they think that Jesus gets a little too much credit for salvation. They probably wouldn't say it that way. In reality, that's what we do as well every time we try to add something to the gospel. Is we start thinking that maybe Jesus, even though he's a savior, maybe he's getting just a little bit too much credit for being our savior. What I mean by that is that that maybe we can argue, and as the false teachers did in Colossae, that Jesus certainly had a good start there with the cross. That when he went and was crucified, shed his blood, died, rose again, that was a great start for saving us and redeeming the people, but there's probably just a little bit more work that needs to be done to really make sure that salvation's locked down. And so for the Colossians, these false teachers were coming in saying, Jesus was a good start, but we've got some feasts and holidays and customs and rituals. Maybe you should keep observing those as well. And sort of that combination of Jesus and tradition, that together we'll make sure that we're fully saved, that this salvation is really effective. So they think Jesus really shouldn't be getting credit for saving us entirely. Maybe it's a little bit of Jesus, or maybe even mostly Jesus, but also a little bit ourselves as well that can get some credit for this one. Like Jesus got us 90% of the way there, but we were good enough to come along, finish off that last 10% because of our effort, because of our discipline, because of the good things we've done, we finally were able to say, now we're fully saved. Paul wants to warn the Colossians and blow up this thinking. He wants them to make sure that there is nothing they can do to work for their salvation. There's nothing they need to add to their salvation because there is absolutely nothing lacking in the saving work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And he's already reminded them in chapter 1, we've seen it here already this morning, that what we brought to salvation was death and evil deeds. We were dead and helpless before God showed up. And it was because of his power that he made us alive and because of his love he gave a Savior through whom our sins can be washed away And the innocence that we have before God is credited wholly to Christ. And we can claim no part of that. Paul says in Ephesians that it is by grace we have been saved so that no one can boast. We have been saved completely by Christ. And that gives us no occasion to be prideful or arrogant. Because we at no point were deserving of God's salvation. And even after God has saved us, we haven't really done anything to prove that he chose the right person. 
because our continued walk with Christ is only made possible by the indwelling of his spirit. So we were dead and undeserving. Christ has made us alive. And even now we rest wholly in his grace. Because if it were up to us, we would wander away from God and chase back after any of the idols that we came from. So Paul is concerned that the Colossians might believe the lie that Christ's salvation was a good start, did a lot, but wasn't quite sufficient. So he gives them this exhortation. Just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You might have a translation that says, continue in him. It has this idea that as just as you heard this message of Jesus as Savior, of Jesus as Lord, you continue on walking down the same path every day of your life, that Jesus is your Savior and Jesus is your Lord. We walk in that truth and we walk in that hope every day that we wake up. And we never graduate on to something else other than clinging to Christ as our only hope. Walk in Christ. So what does it look like to walk in Christ just as we have received him? Paul gives us three things to look for. Three ways that we can see we are walking in Christ. Number one, when we walk in Christ, you are rooted and built up in him. See this verse 7, the very first words. As we're walking in Christ, rooted and built up. In him. Two different metaphors that Paul uses. One is agricultural, giving us this idea of a plant or a tree. The other, architectural, giving us this idea of a foundation that is being built on. But in both metaphors, we see this idea that our entire life, our entire being, and everything about us is founded in Christ. Our roots are in him And we are built on him as the cornerstone and foundation of our life. Jesus uses a similar agricultural metaphor in John 15. And he tells his disciples, I'm the vine. And you, my disciples, are the branches. Branches that flow out from the vine, but apart from the vine, have no life or vitality of their own. But have to flow from that vine so that they might bear fruit. For one who is following Christ, your entire life and person and being is rooted in him and his work. And apart from him, we have no life. We have no vitality. Just like a branch that's cut off of the vine that it has sprouted from. Jesus gives us life. He nourishes us as the vine. And as a result, what he tells us in John 15 is that a branch that is connected to the vine, that is nourished by the vine, will bear fruit. So what does it look like to bear fruit? What does it look like when we are rooted in Christ and built up on him rather than rooted in anything else and trying to establish our life on something other than Christ? There's just... So many things that we could talk about in bearing fruit. I picked out just a few, but this isn't an exhaustive list. But some things to look for in whether or not we are bearing fruit, like a branch that's connected into the vine of Christ, 
or like someone who is rooted down in Christ and not the things of this world or not rooted in our own dependence. Number one, when we bear fruit, we share the love of Christ. When Jesus ascended to heaven, the commission that he gave to his disciples was to make disciples by proclaiming this good news of the kingdom. Just a few weeks ago, Dr. Steve Lee preached for us on Mission Sunday and looked at that commission in Matthew 28. Paul in Romans sees evangelism and says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. When Christ calls a believer to life, our natural inclination is to share that love with everyone else. That we go and we make disciples. We teach them the things that Jesus said. We go and we share this good news of the gospel that they too might experience the joy and the life that we have found in Christ. It's something that we are sent out to do, but it's also something that the Spirit urges us to do wherever we go. It's a fruit that's born of being closely connected to the vine because Jesus has a heart for those who are lost and wandering. And he offers a salvation and a life for those who are lost. And when we're connected in closely and we're rooted up in Christ, we share that same heart, that concern for those who are far and distant from God, under his wrath. And we earnestly hope that they will see the good news of the gospel and believe. So we share that love with everyone that we can. Second way that we bear fruit, we love the disciples. We love each other. In John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The idea of a private Christian doesn't make any sense when you read the New Testament. The idea that following Christ is sort of a private spiritual matter that's just between me and God really makes no sense when you see what Christians look like in the Bible. They are not just people that have been made alive and right with God. They're people who have been made right with God and now brought into his family. And so when God makes us alive, he gives us a family with siblings. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. Because God has called not just individuals, but he has called a people to himself. And that people shows love to one another in a way that is a witness and a testimony to the love that God has showed us. The love that we have for one another is one of the clearest, most concrete ways that an onlooking world can understand the love that God has shown us in Christ. They will know that we are his disciples by the way that we love one another. That's a fruit that's born out of being rooted and built up in Christ. As a family of believers, when we come here, when we gather on a Sunday, the hope is that this isn't just the one time that we connect 
in a seven-day period. There might be some in this room that you only see on Sundays and the rest of the week don't hear much or see much from them, but hopefully in this room you can look around and identify at least a few other individuals that throughout the week are some of your closest friends and relationships that you're walking through life with on a day-by-day basis. As a family of believers, we can display love towards one another by encouraging each other with the hope of the gospel as we sit across the table from a friend and, and hear of the things that they're struggling with, we can remind them of the hope that they have in Christ Jesus the Lord. We can support them in times of distress. We can be supported in times of distress. If you think about our church, we have so many different ways we do that. Some more formal, some less formal. We have deacons. Deacons who are always looking out and listening to hear if there's anyone in our church family that's struggling to see how they might help and serve those brothers or sisters in that time of need. We have small groups that meet together regularly that as someone goes through a trial in their life, they suddenly have a group around them to help them walk through that, to be present with them in that pain, and to continually point them back to the hope that they have in the gospel. We have just friendships. Hopefully here we can have friends, not just church friends, but real friends who we share life with. We enjoy time with one another. So that as we're together, we can display love for one another in a way that shows the world that we are Christ's disciples. One of the fruits that are born of being rooted in Christ. Love for the disciples. The third way that we bear fruit is living in a way that's pleasing to God. James chapter 2 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James often can sound like the confusing of the letters because all of Paul's letters talk about being saved by grace through faith, not of works. And then James comes along towards the end and talks about faith and works. Throughout history, there's been confusion there. Some Christians have read this and taken it to mean that certainly then we have to have faith and then accomplish a set of works, and by those two things we'll be saved. But rather what James is telling us is that our faith will result in works that are pleasing to God. Not as a way to earn his favor, not as a way to try to pile up a credit of good things that will get us into heaven, but rather as an outpouring of a salvation that's already been accomplished in us. So James says that if you have a faith that is alive or if you are rooted in Christ, the outflow of that will be a works that show a life dedicated to God. So as we walk and we're rooted in Christ and we're built up in him, our lives should more and more reflect the nature and character of God. As his spirit works in us to transform us, 
the outflow of that faith and life will be works that are pleasing to him that again show the work of the Spirit to those who are watching. So if we have heard the hope of the gospel, and if we're being rooted and built up in that hope, we will bear fruit that testifies to God's work in us. If we claim that we're rooted and built up on the hope of the gospel, but our life bears no fruit, Jesus would ask, are you a branch that's actually grafted into the vine? Or is it just lip service? There should be fruit that flows out of a life rooted in Christ. The second thing we see from those who are walking in Christ. The first is that we're rooted and built up. The second is that we are established in the faith. And when Paul says this, he says established in the faith, which is different than being established just in your faith. That is to say we are established in the faith of the gospel that has been delivered to us, not just in our personal belief in Jesus Christ. And there's a difference there. Our faith should, be, should continue to be shaped by God's revelation to us, not our own ideas or inventions. Our faith should be shaped by his word. We should be established in a faith that has been taught to us from not only other believers, but from God's word itself. That's why Paul tells us to be established in the faith just as you were taught. This faith that we have is a faith shared with every Christian since Pentecost 2,000 years ago until today. A faith in Christ's work on our behalf that gives us life and union with God. And we know that faith because it has been revealed to us by the prophets. It's been revealed to us through the scriptures. And it's been revealed to us most fully through the person of Jesus Christ. So to believe in Christ is to have faith that is shared with the church universal from 2,000 years ago until now. And so our belief in Christ should continue to be shaped by his word and not our own thoughts of what we think it might look like to be a Christian or what we think is a great way to follow Jesus. If we ever have questions about how our faith practically plays out. God's word is there to guide us and to aid us. Even as we're in a place in a setting like this, my hope is that your faith is not shaped by my words, but by what you see from scripture. Because if there's ever someone that stands up, whether it's on a Sunday morning or in a Bible study or in a Sunday school, and they say something that is against the word of God, they are in error. So every preacher that fills this pulpit And every teacher that would get up in front of a group of people and attempt to teach them what God has said must only teach what the Scripture says because that is what God has revealed to us. And we are to be established in the faith as we have been taught from God's Word. Not taught from the tradition of someone else or not taught from our own ideas of what it looks like to be a Christian. We must be established in the faith revealed to us through God's Word. 
The Psalms say that the one who delights in the word of God is like a tree planted by streams of water. So to be established in our faith is to know the word of God and soak it in like a tree whose roots are continually nourished by the fresh water of a nearby stream. Our roots will soak in any kind of water it can find. Some will be the clear, nourishing, refreshing water of God's word. Other will be the brackish water of our own attempts to be wise and understanding. Always go back to the stream of God's word. Our faith is established just as we were taught from what he has revealed. The third thing that we see from someone who is walking in Christ is an abounding in thanksgiving. The result of one who is walking in Christ Jesus the Lord, who is rooted and built up in him, who is established in the faith just as they were taught, is that they abound in thanksgiving. And as we reach this point, we should notice that what Paul has said before about walking in Christ are not commands that become a checklist of things we need to do. He does not say that you need to walk in Christ by rooting yourself and by building yourself up and by establishing yourself in the faith. Rather, these are works that God does in us. It is God who roots us in Christ, who builds us up in him, and it is God who establishes us in the faith. These are all passive verbs that are happening to those who are walking in Christ, not because of their own effort, not because of their own exertion to be rooted and built up, but because of God's Spirit working in them to root them and build them up and establish them in the faith. So now, just as when you first received Christ, there is nothing you must do to add to your salvation or to secure it for yourself. You were saved by grace while you were dead. God made you alive. The hope that you first heard, Christ Jesus the Lord, is still the hope that you walk in today. And so to walk in this hope is not a checklist of things that we must do to root ourselves to build ourselves up. Rather, it is the reminder of what God does in us because of this good news. So the exhortation to walk as you received him is an exhortation to walk in the freedom of knowing that God has saved you, that he is sustaining you, and that he will bring you to glory with him for eternity. None of your effort or striving or works are required to bring that salvation about. And any time we try to figure out the checklist of what I have to do to walk in my faith and to be built up and to be established and, and, and be rooted, we're just trying to add in works of things we can bring to the table because we don't think Christ has brought quite enough into the situation. So Paul is comforting the Colossians and comforting us by saying, remember the hope. Your hope was Jesus who is Lord, who is Christ, who has authority over all things and who has done all things to save you, what do you possibly think you could add to that? He has done it all. So you no longer need to walk 
in the futility of trying to be good enough to earn God's favor. You no longer need to walk in the frustration of thinking God doesn't care about you or he doesn't notice you, doesn't see what you're going through. You no longer need to walk in the anxiety of wondering whether things will work out in the end and whether you've done all the right things to have a good life or whether you've done everything necessary to secure your eternal destiny. You no longer need to walk in that futility. Because for those who are in Christ, their hope is in Jesus, the Lord of all, who's made all things, who sees all things, who knows all things, and who has power over all things. Our hope is in Jesus, the Christ, who has come near to us, who knows us, who has heard our cry, who is inclined and listened to us, and who has shed his blood for us so that any who might believe have life. So daily we can walk in that hope and our thanksgiving might abound. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would remind us each day of the hope we have received through your Son, that in that we might find a comfort to cease from our striving to earn your favor. I ask that you would continue to root us in Christ, to build us up and to establish us in the faith, that we might abound in our thanksgiving towards you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.